Well, if you were with us on that Sunday evening, a couple of Sundays ago, uh, we talked about how we're going to very intentionally this year focus on the, uh, the marginalized people of society. We're going to very intentionally reach out to the poor and the um, uh, whatever homeless we have, the, the orphans and the widows and the elderly, the disenfranchised. And uh, we were going to inform you and invite you to participate with us. We're going to have some major um, uh, church-wide events, but we're going to, over the next several months, I hope even beyond that, uh, introduce you to ministries like this Women's in Tran- uh, Women in Transitions Ministry and invite you to participate. So I want to add uh, my invitation to you, February the 28th, uh, to come and to be a part of that very important ministry. We all know that the presence of authority um, encourages right behavior, right? Let me give you some example. Our, our, our children don't usually disobey. You know, they don't typically get into fights, mess up the room in front of us. It's, it, it's when we aren't present with watchful eye that they slug it out make a mess, whatever. Students don't normally cheat if the teacher is watching. When she leaves the room, turns her back, that eyes begin to wander, notes begin to pass. That actually gives us the definition of integrity, by the way. Integrity is doing the right thing when no one is watching. You know, it's not cheating even when you can. That's integrity. Obedience under the watchful eye of authority continues even when we grow up. You're on the highway driving with the flow of traffic. Suddenly, you notice everybody slows down because at the front of the pack is now a police car. Half a mile back, you and the pack were driving a little over the speed limit. Now you're driving 55, as if you always do. Policeman pulls off, the pack speeds up. Driving down the highway, someone begins flashing their lights, pack slows down. Maybe... Maybe you don't do this. I have occasionally done this. So someone, someone passes you going perhaps a little faster than you, but you notice he has a little device stuck to his windshield, a radar detector. I would not own one. I would, however, use yours. <laughs> Speed up, assuming that his detector will alert you to the presence of authority. In fact, someone told me once who had a radar detector, got stopped for speeding, As the officer was writing the ticket, he didn't even look up. He said, so how's that detector working out for you? (laughs) (laughs) Accountability. Obedience in the presence of authority is, I, I guess, normal. But this morning, Paul calls us as followers of Christ to obey and reminds us, whether he's present or not, been dead a couple thousand years, um, our ultimate authority is always present. In fact, he not only encourages us, but enables us to obey. We're in a study of the book of Philippians, a great letter that Paul wrote to the church at Philippi while he was in prison in Rome. He seems to have had a special place in his heart for this particular church. They had expressed love and support for Paul, so he writes them this warm friendship letter to say, uh, you know, thanks. But he had also heard that this church was not without problems. He had been an authority in their lives. He's been gone for 10 years, so now they're, well, doing what churches do, fighting. In fact, one author suggested, without problems in the church, we wouldn't have much of the New Testament. So so Paul here, 
hears about this division, this fighting, this bickering in the church, and he writes to address the issue. He begins addressing in chapter 1, verse 27, which many see as a theme verse, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that, notice, whether I come to see you or remain absent, doesn't matter whether I'm there or not, I hear some good things. I hear that you are living gospel-worthy lives. And then he goes on to explain what that looks like. You're standing firm in one spirit. You're striving together for the faith of the gospel. You're not alarmed uh, by your um, opponents, and there will be opponents. Chapter 2, it tells them exactly what this standing firm and striving together looks like. I want you to be of the same mind. I want you to have the same love. I want you to have the same purpose. Now listen, I don't want you to do anything out of selfishness or, or vain conceit. I want you to, with humility, to, to regard others as more important than yourselves. Don't look out for your own interests. Look out for the interests of others. And that brought us to the example of Christ last week. Very frustrating. Last Sunday, we covered what I think is the most important passage, one of the most important passages in all of the Bible. A snow Sunday when half of you were not here. I don't typically encourage you to listen to one of my sermons. If you miss one and want to pick it up, fine. But you need to listen to or at least study Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11. Paul gave us this, this bright jewel of Scripture, an exalted Christology, which covers the person and work of Christ, and which is supposed to serve as an example to us. We must keep this before us. He says, listen, he's, he's God, Jesus says. Yet he didn't regard equality with God something that he had to hold on to. In fact, he well, he emptied himself, now, not of deity, but of the visible display of that glorious deity. And he came in the form of a slave. He took on the likeness of man, and in that likeness, he was obedient. He was obedient to death, even death on a cross. But, but now, God is highly exalted, super exalted him, given him a, a, a name. That at that name, every Knee will bow. When you understand, there's not to be any exemptions, no exceptions. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus is, here's the name, Lord to the glory of our triune God. Therefore, in light of the fact that Jesus was humble, since Jesus was obedient, Paul calls us to obedience in our text today. Look at it with me, Philippians chapter 2, verses, two uh, verses 12 and following. Just citing the example of Jesus. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, I don't have to be there, but now much more in my absence, uh, but I've heard some things. I want you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So, do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among which you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, 
I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and I, I, I share my joy with you all. You too, I, I, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Paul here says, listen, I, I am calling you to obey. We've got, we've got this issue of division in the church. Whether, whether I'm present or not, I want you to obey. And I want to remind you of something. God is present with you, but more than that, he is there to encourage and enable you to get along, to, to obey. And listen, you need to know that the very effectiveness of the gospel of Jesus Christ is at stake. Do, do, do you know that there are people who, who say, I would become a Christian if it wasn't for Christians? The gospel of Jesus Christ is at stake. And he says, my ministry is at stake. In fact, those ideas form our outline. We're going to see this call to obedience and this call to, of the gospel. It's, it's, it's at stake, folks, in the call of Paul's ministry. He starts with the word so then, let's literally therefore, in light of Christ's humble example of obedience, even as he emptied himself and went to a cross, therefore, and he's, he's, he's been nailing them, but he says, therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, continue to obey. Paul was always the encourager. He calls them beloved. My dearly loved ones. Now, let me just take a little aside here because I think this is a good example to us. When we have to correct someone, you ever had to do that? Maybe, maybe children, maybe parents, uh, spouses, friends, uh, each other. It's good to remind them that we're doing this because they are dearly beloved in Christ, family in Christ. In fact, the very... The, the, the very reason that we correct and that we call to righteousness is love. You see, we get mixed up. We think that love would cause me to overlook wrongs. No, love doesn't cause me to overlook wrongs. Love causes me to address them and to call you to obedience and to call you to righteousness. I love you. Therefore, I want what's best for you, which is a God-glorifying obedience. He encourages them by reminding them. You're, you're loved. He encourages them by reminding them of their past obedience. Just as you have always obeyed. Paul remembers their obedience to the gospel. Remember in the first chapter, from the first day, your partnership in the gospel, from the first day until now. He remembers their sacrificial gift that they just sent, their, their care from, from Epaphroditus. They're, they're giving sacrificially to the church at Jerusalem. They had been obedient. You've always obeyed, not only when I'm there, but even when I'm not. Another little aside here. When we have to correct people, it's good to encourage them with past and even present obedience. You know, if the only time you ever talk to someone about their behavior is to tell them that they're a total screw-up, that's not very helpful. If we only point out failures with one another, not very encouraging. It is good, you see, when you have to encourage uh, and correct behavior to cite some positive acts of obedience. Hey, let me give you an example. 
My, my wife does this with me. Now, I, I know that many wives out here are going to relate to what I'm saying right now. You, and if, if you don't relate, you need to hear this, women. You need to know that men are way too sensitive and that we take criticism far too harshly. If my wife needs to point out an area of concern or weakness or failure, I've had one or two in our years of marriage, she knows that I have a tendency to go to the dark place. I know, I know, I'm a lousy husband and an awful, terrible father. She knows that that's my tendency to go there. I'd ask you to raise your hands, wives, but you're probably sitting next to your husband. So, my wife, the way my wife does it, she says, Scott, I am not saying you're a jerk. I'm not saying you're a failure. Don't go to the bad place. Come back, come back. Don't go to the bad place. You're a good dad. You're a good husband. This area, however, needs some work. That is what Paul is doing. He's saying, I love you. You're usually obedient when I'm present, even when I'm not. But this area needs some work. End of aside, that's just a little help for your marriages. Paul goes on. Even as you are typically obedient, you need to, you need to continue on. You, you need to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And all of a sudden, this verse begins to take on an entirely different meaning than what we've heard. Because, you see, this verse has caused people heartburn for centuries. What do you mean, Paul? Using salvation and work in the same sentence. You can't do that. I thought salvation was by grace through faith and not of works. And what is that fear and trembling thing? Lots of challenges. But when we look at it in its context, all of a sudden it begins to make sense. And you see, in our individualistic society, it sounds an awful lot like uh, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. You, you, you need to work on it. You need to work on your salvation. And since you're working for your own personal salvation, you better do a really good job or you're in big trouble. That has nothing to do with what Paul is saying. When we look at it in his context and we realize a couple of very important things that um, the words work out and your are in the plural, all, all of a sudden it, it makes sense. Paul is writing to a divided church. And he is calling them to obediently unite together. Come on, church, he says. All of you work out the results, the evidence, the proof of your salvation together. This is not a call to individually work for salvation, but this is how, as saved people, you live out, you work out your salvation in the believing community called the church. By believing, uh, by obediently striving together, by being of one mind, of one love, one purpose, you are working out your individual salvation, sure, but you are doing it in a community. We need to, he's telling us, we need to stand firm together. That tells me something. You can't work out an individual salvation without the corporate community. You can't work out your salvation in isolation. It goes against what Paul is saying here. He says to do with fear and trembling. Now, well, what does that mean? Interesting words. We're talking about the evidence and, and work of salvation, the proof of salvation within the church. And, and Paul is reminding us this is very serious stuff. Don't take this lightly. I know that we live in a world today that makes very little of the church. 
makes fun of the church, that takes the church very lightly, that, 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 that takes the church, that, that makes it optional. I want you to know that the scripture never does. We are talking about the very people of God. So realize as you are working out your salvation together, you are doing it in the people of God called the church of Jesus Christ. This is serious. Don't make light of the church. Don't ever treat it with less than the respect and love that it deserves, even in fear and trembling. My goodness, it is the people of God. See, fear and trembling are often used of standing in the presence of a holy God or in the presence of His holy people. You bet there should be fear and trembling. I'm talking about the church for which Christ died. Please notice he does use the words work and salvation, same sentence. Because you have been saved, yeah, because you possess this salvation individually, there should be a corporate expression. There should be works. Salvation is... Salvation comes by faith alone, but it is never alone. The church should be producing good works. We should be at the front of these kinds of ministry that are caring for people in our community. Christopher Hutchins has it completely wrong when he says that religion is the cause of great evil in the world. He's wrong. Christianity is the cause of great good in the world. That's because when we, are, when we become saved, it produces good works. In fact, James says, you don't have good works, you don't have salvation. Your, your faith is lifeless. It's dead. He says, as you have always obeyed, keep on doing it. Press on to even greater works. One author said it this way. Listen, this is hard. When the path to obedience to Christ becomes steep and dangerous. Pleasure seekers look for an easier way. I would suggest they even quit. Religious tourists hunting for sensational entertainment, instantaneous enlightenment, and emotional excitement will jump on the newest rides and take shortcuts, but they will not be found with pilgrims on the long, hard road following the footsteps of Christ, who was obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is what Paul is calling us to. Now, Paul's an encourager. He says, I want you to work uh, out your salvation in fear and trembling, but here, I got some good news for you. God is at work in you to make sure this happens. Again, you is plural. He 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 is the one who gives you both the will and the work for his good pleasure. Do you see what Paul says? I want you to work. I want you to work hard. But then he says, and it's God who does the work. God is the... Is the one who um, initiates the work, he sustains the work, and he said in chapter one, he'll complete the work. This idea of letting go and let God, uh, wrong. He tells us work, and then he reminds us that it is God who works in his church. God is the initiator of both human willing and human working. He works in you all to give us even the will to, and desire to obey. Truth is, if left to ourselves, we could not do it. If left to ourselves, we could not get along. If left to ourselves, we would fight, which tells me that a lot of the problems that we see in the church today is because we're trying to do it ourselves. 
If left to ourselves, not only could we not do it, we would not even want to. God calls us to obedience and then enables the same, same, starting with the desire, all the way through the completed action. For his good pleasure. Don't miss that. God finds pleasure in the obedience of his children. Why is this all important? Why, Why does God call, why is Paul calling us to this humble, loving, united obedience because, point two, nothing less than the gospel of Jesus Christ is at stake. It's fairly important. Verses 14 to 16, do all things, everything that I've been talking to you about, without grumbling or disputing, so that, and he begins these series of so that, these series of purpose clauses, so that you prove yourselves, plural, That all of you prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding, holding firm, holding fast the word of life. Lots there. But you need to, even as we jump into this, you need to know that Paul is a man deeply steeped in Old Testament scripture because he makes lots of allusions to the Old Testament here. He's, he's, he's specifically thinking of the Old Testament people of God, Israel, but he makes application to us, New Testament people of God called the church. He starts by saying, do all things, everything you do, everything that I'm calling you to, do that without grumbling. Stop complaining. Quit griping. Grumbling is just like it sounds. It's this murmuring or whispering complaints. Disputing is this idea of having a critical spirit, questioning everything, raising doubts, being divisive. And that word murmuring and disputing should should sound familiar to us if we're familiar with the Old Testament because that's what he's saying. Listen, the Old Testament people were known for their murmuring and complaining. In fact, when you look at their murmuring and complaining, they often murmured against their, this is very important, against their leaders. And and most suggest that Paul is giving us a little glimpse as to the kind of division that existed in the church at Philippi. Murmuring and complaining against leadership. It might even be that the leadership itself was murmuring and complaining, which is why in this letter, unlike any other letter, he says to the saints at Philippi, and listen, you overseers and deacons, you pay special careful attention. You elders, you leaders, you need to listen up, he says. It's, it's possible these two women mentioned in chapter 4, Euodia and Syntyche, along with Clement, were leaders in the church, and we know they were divided against each other. This is, a, this is a problem. Can I, let me just take, I've got several asides this morning. Let me just take an, take an aside here and talk about us at Alliance Bible Fellowship because I, I believe, I believe that this is an area of strength for us. Now, that does not mean that we do everything right. We don't. But in my years of experience here, I find a great degree of love and unity not only within the leadership itself. You can come to our elder meetings whenever you want. You can come to those elder meetings and watch the, 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 the love and the unity and the humility that exists. But, but, but also your love and support for the leadership of this church is exemplary. We don't have 
leaders vying for attention and power and visibility. There is much love and unity for which I am very thankful. In fact, I'm a little bit nervous to mention it out loud because I know the enemy um, may declare war on that arena. But we must remain deeply and passionately committed to Christ and His people and to the leadership here at Alliance. And I just want to affirm that. Do all things without grumbling and disputing because this takes away from unity. This doesn't mean that we close our eyes to false teaching and, 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 and sin. Paul addresses both of those issues in this book. We have a responsibility to hold each other accountable to truth and righteousness. But do that it, with humility without grumbling and complaining. If it is true that we're talking about division within the leadership or the people's division against the leadership, he is telling us together, do this without, if you need to address an issue, do it without grumbling and complaining, without murmuring. There's a proper place and a proper way for this to be handled. He wants you to do this so that, again, a purpose clause you will prove, you will put on display the fact that you are blameless, innocent, and above reproach. He actually uses three kind of bad words, but he puts the, the A in front of it to, to negate them. I want you to be without blame. I want you to be without flaw. I want you to be without fault. Because when Christian conversation and character is laced with complaints and fighting and bickering and division and personal attacks, we have lost our way and we become more like the world than we have the people of God. These three words focus on how we are to relate. He's talking about specifically to each other. Be, be blameless means to be blameless. You don't we're not griping with a bitter tone against each other. We don't do that. To be pure means we don't even have a negative spirit against each other. Uh, to be without fault or above reproach means that we're not, we don't carry bitter criticisms and angry quarreling with each other. This has no place in the body of Christ. You show me a church or a ministry or a group where there's lots of fighting and bickering and complaining and whining, and I'll show you a church where the spirit is not in control and the flesh has risen. No place for that in the body of Christ. Be godly. Why? Purpose clause, so that you will be lights in the world holding fast, firm, the word of life. It's another allusion to an important Old Testament passage. Do, uh, Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, particularly in the, in the Greek trans translation, there's a great connection here. It, it says this, and, and Daniel's writing prophetically. Those who understand will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteousness, they're going to shine like stars forever and ever. Paul quotes this familiar passage says, listen, I want you to be lights in the world. Daniel was writing prophetically, listen to me, you're supposed to be the fulfillment of that prophecy. You're supposed to be lights in the world. What does light do? We've talked about it before, it exposes darkness. People get irritated when darkness is exposed and they will oppose you. Jesus said that they would in Matthew 5. They, 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 they will oppose you. But then he goes on. He says, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. He doesn't stop there. Light doesn't just expose darkness. It sh shines the way for darkness. Let your light shine. Next verse there on that screen. 
Okay. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. How is it that they glorify the Father in heaven by seeing our good works? Because we light the way to the Father and they in turn glorify Him. That's what Paul is saying here. Exposing darkness is not all that light, do, all, all that light does. As lights in a very dark world, we light the way to God. We hold fast the word of life. The word of life is very simply the gospel. This leads to our last point. First glance, this last point seems a bit odd. Holding fast, look at verse 16 with me. Holding fast the word of life so that, so that, purpose clause, I want you to live the gospel life and hold it out so that in the day of Christ Jesus, that is when Jesus comes back, I, Paul, will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain, nor did I toil in vain. Let me just wrap this up very quickly. You hear what he just said? Paul just said, I want you to be holy. I want you to be godly. I want you to be blameless and innocent and above reproach so that when Jesus comes back, I can show off. Not exactly, but a little bit. You see, for Paul, everything was Christ and his gospel. For Paul, everything was the people of God. And when Christ comes back, I want my life, my work to have been effective. And that's only going to be true if you are walking with Christ. I don't want to have run in vain. To run uh, was a, a favorite metaphor for Paul. It speaks of expending every ounce of energy to reach the finish line. That's what I'm doing. To, to, to work, he uses a very specific word. I don't want to work in vain. To work to the point of exhaustion. In other places, he says, I worked harder than anyone. I don't want to get to the end of my life having run and having worked for nothing. I want my work to be effective because this will redound to the glory of God. That's what he was about. When Paul talked about glorying, he never talked about glorying in himself. He always talked about glorying in Christ and his cross and his people. That's what I want. It doesn't matter, he says, verse 17, I think. It doesn't matter whether or not um, I, I, I'm poured out as a drink offering. It doesn't matter. All that matters is that my work is effective. So make my joy complete. So share my joy with me and you share yours with me as we together in a united fashion serve Christ who is worthy. Let's stand for prayer.